0: <clears throat> Good morning, everyone. Welcome to each one of you. Glad we can gather in this way this morning. <clears throat> I plan to continue in Genesis. This morning, uh, continue with the life of, of Joseph. I had, it's been quite a while since I preached from Genesis. Um, I had done a little detour and uh, looked at time last time I preached. So I'm going to be coming back to, to Genesis. Very brief review Joseph's life. He's born to, to Jacob, he's one of 12 sons, and he's the favorite. There's a lot of favoritism here, and it, uh, it's a tough family situation. Multiple wives, uh, a lot of jealousy and infighting. Uh, if you know the story, Jacob, or Joseph is. His brothers are very jealous of him. End up planning to kill him, and then sell him, in, and then they end up selling him into slavery. He's taken to Egypt, sold again as a slave falsely accused, ends up in prison, and repeatedly, throughout these chapters, throughout the story, the writer keeps saying, but the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph, and every time you think his situation can't get worse, it got worse, and suddenly he must have had whiplash. Suddenly he goes from being in prison, a slave and in prison, thirteen years. He's suddenly taken from there and made governor, second to only Pharaoh in all of Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world at the time. So he goes from being a slave and in prison to through God revealing the meaning of dreams to him, God places him as second in command in the nation of Egypt. Now God had told him there were going to be Seven years of plenty. Seven years, it would be the the crops would produce like fields would produce like they had never seen, followed by seven years of famine that would never had never been equaled in the past. And uh, that's what happens. The seven years of of plenty have gone by by uh, Genesis 41 at the end of Genesis 41 where we stopped last time, and now the, the famine is over all the earth. I'm going to jump in and read uh, the last verse of Genesis 41, so all countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain, because the famine was severe in all lands, <clears throat> so this is a really widespread tough famine, and we're only in the second year of it, so there's five more years of famine coming. What I'm going to be doing this morning, I want to briefly, want to, I'm going to read part, summarize part of Genesis uh, 42, 43, and 44, just to catch the story of what's happening here. Then I'd like to briefly look, just focus on, not Joseph, but Joseph's, Joseph's brother Judah I was struck in studying in the last couple of weeks in reading through these these chapters Judah just stood out to me I felt like I should pause in looking at Joseph well look at the just skim those 3 chapters but then I'd like to notice Judah and what God did in changing Judah Picking up in Genesis 42, I'm going to read the first 11 verses. When Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Indeed I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there, that we may live and not die. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers. For he said, lest some calamity befall him. And the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land, and it was he who sold, all the, who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he acted as a stranger to them and spoke harshly to them. Then he said, Where do you come from? And they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. So Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Just a footnote, the, I'm told the original says that he, he, actually, he took action to make so they wouldn't recognize him. It doesn't tell us exactly what he did, but we can imagine he's quite different. The last time they saw him, he was 17 years old. He's a teenager. This is now about 20, 20, 22 years later, and he's no longer a teenager. He now looks, they have beards, and he's smooth-shaven. Egyptians didn't shave all of their body. and. He's dressed as Egyptian. He's speaking Egyptian fluently. So he looks very different. He speaks to them through an interpreter. Verse 9, Then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, No, my lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all one man's sons. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. Why do you think Joseph doesn't reveal himself to them right away? And what, if you think about what could have happened here? Joseph is in a position of power and authority like none of us have ever been in, and here come his brothers, if anyone was in a position where he could right wrongs or get revenge, Joseph could at this point. There's nothing stopping him. No one will say anything. And the brothers will get what they deserve. That's not my focus today, but Joseph could have done whatever he wanted. Joseph chose to not reveal who he was. I think Joseph wanted to check out their character. What kind of men have they become? Are they still the men who will sell their brother? are they still the men who who were ready to kill him what are they like he wants to test their character you know they mentioned they're all one man's sons that they're not spies it wouldn't be a very wise move for a country to for a nation to send 10 brothers on a spying mission all as a as a group here come 10 brothers that's their point that wouldn't make sense that that attracts attention you send them out singly and quietly But Joseph answers them roughly, accusing them. Joseph goes on to tell them that they're going to be tested. He says, by the life of Pharaoh, you shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. He has questioned them about their father, about the rest of their family. They've said their father is alive. They have a younger brother. Of course, we know why Joseph wants to see his younger brother. It's his only full brother. He wants to see Benjamin, and he will also test them to see what they're made of, what they are like. Joseph puts them all together into prison for three days. Now, you can imagine what what that's like for his brothers. Do you think Joseph's brothers were excited about going to Egypt? In the first place, I doubt it. They had to. They were starving, and their dad sends them to Egypt, but if I put myself in their shoes and I think about what it must have been like for those ten brothers, not for Benjamin, but for the, other, for the others, what, would it, what was it like to go to Egypt? They know. It's in the back of their minds. They sent their brother to Egypt as a slave. You think they had any fear they might see him? Probably comforted themselves with the fact that, ah, it won't happen. Out of the millions of people, surely not. And how many slaves must there be in the nation of Egypt? Never guessing, they will stand face to face with their brother. But they couldn't have been comfortable with going there. On the third day, so they sit in prison, they've got time to think for three days about the seriousness of what they're being charged with. And he goes to them and says, do this and you will live for I fear God. Tells them, if you are honest, one of your brothers, I'll keep one of your brothers here, the rest of you go home and when you come back, you bring your youngest brother to prove you're not spies. By the way, the, uh, the northeast border of Egypt was the, the one they felt they needed to guard the most, where Joseph's brothers came in. And wouldn't it be a perfect time to come and get food and check things out? So that's why Joseph's accusing them of this, and for it made sense for him to accuse them of that, but he's checking them out. I want to jump down and, and pick up in... Verses 21 and 22 of chapter 42. So when he says this to them, then they said to one another, We are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul. When he pleaded with us, and we would not hear, therefore this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not speak to you, saying, Do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen? Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for he spoke through an interpreter. And Joseph turns his back and weeps. I think that tells us something about Joseph's attitude. Joseph, I don't believe Joseph was an angry man. Joseph wept. Imagine the feelings that go through Joseph as he hears his brothers, thinking he can't understand them, speaking in Hebrew, And saying it's because of our brother. You know what we did. This is why bad things are happening. It's over 20 years later and they still have a guilty conscience. When something bad happens, they assume that it's because of their guilt. It's because of what they did. Isn't that what happens to us? By admitting they're taking the first step, the first step in the right direction by admitting they are guilty. They have done wrong. That's the first step. You no, know, guilt is actually a gift from God. It's a reminder that something's wrong. Saying, Nate, that's not right. Something needs to change. You need to do something about that. Guilt is to the soul what pain is to the physical body. Do we enjoy pain? Of course not. You touch a hot stove and you jerk back. You want to get away from pain. We don't like pain, but what if you have no pain? Ask people with leprosy, and they will tell you that pain is a tremendous gift. They can touch the hot stove, and they don't feel pain. They will burn their hand. They, it may be laying there. I read about a man in India who had leprosy, and when Dr. Paul, he came to Dr. Paul Brand to be treated because... His fingers were eaten away to the bone because he didn't know that at night the rats were crawling up in bed and eating on his fingers because he didn't feel it. He slept right through it. So pain is a gift. Pain and guilt. Guilt is to the soul what pain is to the physical body. Both are a warning to protect us from permanent damage. You know, I have a choice in how I respond. It is a frightening possibility that I can choose to habitually ignore the promptings of the Holy Spirit. When He reminds me that something's wrong, something needs to change, I can choose to ignore that and harden my heart. Or I can choose to respond and move in step with God, to repent, to change direction. It's my choice. When Joseph heard them talking about what they'd done to him, he turned his back and wept. Following this, Joseph commands his his, uh, servants to fill every man's sack with grain and put their money back into the top of their sack. Unexpected. Plus, he gave them extra provisions for their journey. When they stopped to camp for the night, one of them opens his sack to feed his donkey and he discovers his money's in there. He tells the others, and immediately they say, Oh no, that's, it. that's in uh, verse 28. He says to his brothers, My money has been restored, and there it is in my sack. Then their hearts failed them and they were afraid, saying to one another, What is this that God has done to us? Now, why do they think God is doing this to them? You know, even when something good happens, their money was returned. The guilty conscience assumes, God is against me. They continue on home and they recount to Jacob everything that happened to them. And while they're at home, they discover that every man has his money in his sack. They thought it was just the one, but it's when they're telling Jacob they discover this. And Jacob's response is like theirs. He says, "I'm sorry, I lost which verse it is. In verse 36 of 42, he says, You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. He's in prison in Egypt. And now you want to take Benjamin. All these things are against me. They'd been telling him that Joseph had said they must bring Benjamin along before they'll get more grain. Reuben then comes up with a plan. Reuben's the oldest, and so he's looked to as the spokesperson, the spokesman for the group. And he says, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. What kind of an offer is this? I mean, if, if I don't bring your son back, you can kill your grandsons too? That doesn't sound like a good deal to me. Thanks. I'm, he's, he's saying he's willing to be bereaved. He's willing to have his sons taken too. But notice in 38, Jacob does not trust Reuben. Jacob says, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he is left alone. If any calamity should befall along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Jacob is still grieving the loss of his son Joseph. And here's his only full brother from his favorite wife, Rachel, who now they say must go to Egypt. And he is not. He says, that's one thing, that's not happening. And at this point, he's completely unwilling to have that happen. Jacob doesn't trust Reuben, and for a good reason. Years earlier, Reuben had a sexual relationship with one of his father's wives. Jacob knows what kind of person he is. In Genesis chapter 43, the famine continues, and now Jacob's family, Joseph's family in in Canaan has used up all the food they bought in Egypt. And Jacob is delaying sending them back for more because he doesn't want to send Benjamin. He's been putting it off. Finally, in verses 8 and 9, Judah says to Israel his father, Send the lad with me. We will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you, set him and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. For if we had not lingered, surely by now have, we would have returned the second time. They've put it off so long. They're in danger of starving. They're, run, they're out of grain. They obviously have some other things, but they. And Judah is willing to guarantee he will bring him back. He will bear the guilt if he doesn't bring him back. At this point, Jacob listens to Judah, where he didn't to Reuben. And he tells him to take a gift. And the things he lists are things that he says to take with them the best things of the land. Things that are hard to get in Egypt, but were common in Israel, in Canaan. And so they take a a gift for the... The men, as they call him, who they don't know as Joseph. They also take, he instructs them to take double their money, because remember the money's returned, so they take double the money to prove that they're honest men, and they're coming back with double, and they take Benjamin. Jacob allows them to take Benjamin. When, uh, when he allows him to take Benjamin, he also says... In verse 14, And may God Almighty give you mercy for before the man. May he release your other brother and Benjamin. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. And here, it's interesting to note, just, uh, it's just occurred to me, as you go through this story, it's interesting to notice that when Jacob is living for himself, he's called Jacob, when he takes a step of faith, He's called Israel. And when he allows Benjamin to go, uh, he's called Israel here in this passage. He's taking a step of faith. So they take the present and they go. Can you imagine how the brothers felt going back to Egypt for the second time? You know what happened the first time? They got thrown in jail, they're released to prove that they're innocent. They don't know what's going to happen. They're afraid. They've been accused of spying. They don't know if they get the death penalty or if they're put in prison or what will happen. Will they end up slaves for the rest of their lives. Imagine their shock. When they arrive, Joseph sees them coming and he tells his steward, these men are going to be eating with me at my house. Go and prepare a meal for them. And they're, they're invited to a feast at the governor's mansion. The brothers assume immediately they're being brought there because of the money that was returned. And so they talk about it among themselves and they approach the steward. Before Joseph is at the house, they approach the steward and they say, look, here we found our money returned in our sacks and here it is. We're honest men. We've brought it back to you. The steward's response is, no, I have your money. Your God gave that to you. The steward reminds them, God is at work. They expect going to Joseph's house, they say that they're afraid Joseph is going to seize them as slaves. They don't say Joseph, but the man will seize them as slaves and will take their donkeys. Did Joseph need their money or their donkeys? He didn't. He had everything you could imagine. They tell the the steward their money is returned. And then, to their surprise, Simeon is also released to them. The steward brings them all into Joseph's house and treats them as honored guests. He washes their feet. He feeds their donkeys. You go through the whole list of of, uh, eastern hospitality. When he comes home, they give him gifts and they bow themselves on the ground to Joseph. Imagine Joseph thought back to a dream many years ago that got him thrown, sold as a slave. And here they are. It happened just like God told him it would. His brothers are bowing again. So they give him their gifts and they bow. Then Joseph asks about their father, and they again prostrate themselves before him the second time. Verses 29-31. to He sees Benjamin. Then he lifted his eyes and he saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Now his heart yearned for his brother. So Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep. And he went into his chamber and wept there. And when he had washed his face and come out, and came out, he restrained himself and said, Serve the bread. So Joseph has to, when he sees his blood brother there before him and imagine this has been 22 years since he's seen him he was a little child the last time joseph saw him he rushes out of the room with emotions just he's overcome with emotion there's six different times joseph weeps in with his brothers <clears throat> So they serve the food, and, and Joseph is seated by himself. It's interesting they tell us how they're seated. But Joseph, as because of his position of authority, is seated by himself. His brothers are seated by themselves, and the Egyptians are seated by themselves because the New King James says it, it is an abomination or it is detestable to the Egyptians to eat with Hebrews. It's below them. They won't do that. And so they're eating separate, but... The brothers must have been amazed. Here this ruler serves them from his table. He brought things from his table to theirs. It's a great honor. And then he heaps five times as much food on Benjamin as he does on all the rest of his brothers. Why does Joseph do that? I think he's intentionally showing favoritism. It shows a special relationship for one thing. This is his only full brother, but I wonder if he isn't testing them showing favoritism, and seeing how will they respond if they don't get as much as Benjamin does. He knows what happened when he was a teenager, and I believe he wants to see what kind of men they have become. Joseph's brothers are also astonished when they're seated in the order of their age, from oldest to the youngest. They're they're in exact order of age. They must have looked at each other and thought, how does this man know so much about us? How do they, he must have really checked us out. Reading about this, Henry Morris, I want to quote Henry Morris. He says, one can easily show, merely by multiplying together all the numbers from 1 through 11, that there are no less than 39,917 different orders in which 11 individuals could have been seated. Thus, for the servants to select the one correct order by chance was almost impossible. The odds were almost 40 million to one against it. So they knew this couldn't be chance. What is going on? So here's Joseph intentionally showing favoritism to Benjamin. And it's out of Benjamin's control but Joseph wanted to see would they treat Benjamin the way they had treated Joseph 20-some years before. 43 ends with, so they drank, they ate and drank, and were married with him. Genesis 44 tells us Joseph's final test of his brother's character. Again, Joseph is not doing this to be mean, but Joseph is simply checking What are they like? What kind of men are they? Before he reveals who he is. In chapter 44, he again tells his steward to fill the men's sacks with as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack again. On top of that, in Benjamin's sack, they are to put Joseph's special silver cup that he drinks out of. Put that in Benjamin's sack. The steward follows his... His orders exactly. And the next morning, the brothers leave, and Joseph allows them to be gone long enough that they've left the city, are traveling toward home, and he sends the steward after him, probably with other men to enforce his orders, but went, went after them and accused them of stealing Joseph's silver cup. Of course, his brothers adamantly declare, They didn't do it. They're honest men. Look, we brought our money back. All the way from Canaan, we brought money back to give to you when it was returned to us. You know we're honest. We wouldn't do this. And they suggest that he searches them to prove that they're innocent. And they, they say, and the person who has it, if, we, if any of us has stolen from you, he should die. And the steward says... Whoever has the cup will be my slave, but the rest of you will be blameless. And we know what's going to happen. He starts with the oldest again and works his way to the youngest. The tension's building, but, you know, now there's more and more who aren't. Well, and they're getting toward the end. Nobody suspects there's actually going to be the silver cup. He gets to Benjamin and there's the silver cup. How did the brothers respond? The brothers tear their clothes. Sign of severe distress, grief. There's the test of the brothers' character. Will they desert Benjamin to slavery in Egypt? They have the opportunity here to desert him. Say, what? You stole from, him, from the governor? How foolish. We've got families to take a... Here, we're going home. Our families are starving. We've got children, wives, children, grandchildren, and you steal. Or maybe they knew that Benjamin didn't steal. I don't know. They could have still said, well, it's better for him to go back by himself than all of us to go back. There was lots of ways they could have reasoned that they shouldn't go back. But they all go back with him to Joseph. It speaks for what kind of men they were becoming. Joseph's big question is, have his brothers changed? What kind of men are they? In verse 14 of 44, So Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, and he was still there, and they fell before him on the ground. Notice it says Judah and his brothers, not Reuben and his brothers. Judah has now taken, he's looked to as the leader, as the spokesperson for the brothers, instead of Reuben, who's the oldest. Judah is the second born. Verses 16 and 17 of uh, chapter 44. Then Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he also with whom the cup was found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. The man in whose hand the cup was found, he shall be my slave. And as for you, go up in peace to your father. And Pause there. So Judah recognizes, there's no way for us to clear ourselves. There's no proof, there's no, I don't have any evidence. I've got nothing to say. We're here to be your slaves. Joseph gives them another opportunity to leave Benjamin. But they don't take it. Judah proceeds to give a passionate speech. But before we look at that, Let's back up. Let's flash back in Genesis earlier and look at Judah's past. I want to pause and look back. Think back just briefly. What kind of man was Judah in the past? In Genesis chapter 37, when Joseph's brothers had decided to kill him, Judah said, what profit is there if we kill him? Let's sell him. We might as well get money out of this. We're not getting anything if we kill him. Then he and his brothers heartlessly lead their father to believe that a wild animal killed him. Pour blood over his robe and tear it and take it back and say, Is this your son's robe? And he knows, yes, it is. And he grieves for the next 22 years while his sons watch and and remain silent. Can you imagine living with that? 22 years. In Genesis 38, you'll recall we skipped over that. 37 tells us how Joseph was sold into slavery. 38 is about Judah, and 39 is back about Joseph again. In Genesis 38, God Well, backing up, God had promised Judah's great-grandfather, Abraham, that through his descendants, all the earth would be blessed. God had chosen them to be a megaphone, so to speak, through which he made himself known to the world. But in Genesis chapter 38, we see Judah being assimilated into Canaanite culture. He wasn't living a life that honors God. He had married a Canaanite woman. He gets a Canaanite wife for his oldest son. His two oldest sons are so wicked that we're told God kills them because of how wicked they were. In Genesis chapter 38, we see Judah lying. We see he's an immoral man who has children with his widowed daughter-in-law. We see he was self-righteous. He's Basically, he's living just like the pagan cultures out around him. And the God's chosen people are in danger of just being assimilated into the godless cultures around them, becoming one with them. Why is Genesis 38 in the Bible? I read that and go, wow, all the, the rotten things that are there. Why is that in the Bible? I don't claim to have all the answers this morning, but I have a couple ideas One, I wonder if it isn't to contrast Judah's character with Joseph's character. We saw that earlier. Second, I think Genesis 38 is there to show what happens when a person is determined to go their own way. Third, I wonder if it isn't there, if Genesis 38 isn't there, so we can see that God works through sinful people who turn to Him. God can change Anyone. I'm going to read Genesis. Let's go back now to Genesis 44. I want to read Judah's speech. <clears throat> Genesis 44 and verse 18. Then Judah came near him to Joseph and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing, and do not let your anger burn against your servant, for you are even like Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And he said to my Lord, We have a father, an old, an old man, and a child in, of his old age who is young. His brother is dead, and he is left alone with his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, by the way, I'm just going to, one thing i failed to mention, notice how often he speaks about his father. I think it's 15 times, but just notice how much Judah talks about his dad. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me that I may set my eyes upon him. And we said to my lord, The lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. But you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall see my face no more. So it was when we went up to your servant, my father, that we told him the words of my lord. And our father said, Go back and buy us a little food. But we said, We cannot go down if our youngest brother is with us, then we will go down, for we may not see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant my father said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One of them went out from me, and I said, Surely he is torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. But if you take this one from me, and calamity befalls him, you shall bring my gray haired with sorrow to the grave. Now therefore, when I come to your servant my father, And the lad is not with us. Since his life is bound up with the child's life, it will happen that when he sees the lad is not with us, that he will die. So your servants will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad, As a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me? Lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father. So Judah mentions his father, I think, 15 times. He's concerned about his father. This is the same man who cruelly led his father to believe that Joseph was killed. Who allowed him to grieve and grieve and would not be comforted, the Bible tells us, for 22 years. But he's a different man. He cares about his father now. You know, his father still has problems. He's not perfect. His father still shows favoritism. That's very clear in here. Now his father's favorite is Benjamin. His father still shows favoritism, but Judah has chosen to overlook his father's imperfections because he loves him. And Judah is willing to suffer for his father and his brother because he loves them. You know, with Joseph being the governor of Egypt, Wouldn't it make sense? Sorry, I'm jumping back to Joseph. But if, with Joseph being the governor of Egypt, wouldn't it make sense? If God had decided to send the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus, through Joseph's lineage, that would have made sense to me. But you know what God did? God chose to send our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus, through Judah through Judah's descendants. A cruel, selfish, sinful man whom God changed into a self-sacrificing man who begs to take the place of his brother as a slave. A man who's willing to sacrifice his future for the sake of his father and his brother. He's willingly giving up his future, and he has a family at home, and he's willing to be a lifelong slave. And through Judah, we have King David, and later on, the Lord Jesus, who willingly gave his life for all of us, for everyone, for our sins. Jesus is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. The story of Judah gives me hope that God can change a sinful heart into one that honors him. Do you have things in your past that you're ashamed of? I do. I wish. I wish I could erase several years, but I can't and I'm grateful that we have a God who works in hearts and changes people. There's hope even for me. We can bring the things we're ashamed of to the Lord Jesus. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Colossians 1, 19 and 22. For it pleased the Father that in Him, Jesus all the fullness should dwell, and by him, to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross, and you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach in his sight. Can you imagine that? Do you see sinful tendencies in your life, areas where you need to grow? I do. I can bring those to the Lord Jesus as well. Ivan reminded us about confessing our faults to one another. God can change me if I will turn to him just like he changed Judah. There is hope for every person. I repeat, there is hope for every person. Would you stand, please? I'm going to close with this benediction. Now may the God of peace himself... Sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Thank you for being here. You're dismissed.